Greetings, friends. I'm Will Nicholas from Never Odd or Even, and this is the Deep Faith Nine podcast, exploring faith and fiction. Deep Space Nine. It's a wonderful reflective moment. Flame the dark. True salt wave. Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine. What's going on? Why is this being highlighted? That itself is another interesting question, isn't it? I think I'm starting to get why this science fiction thing is uh, <laughs> uh, is so attractive. You'll, you'll make a sci-fi fan out of me yet. Greetings, friends. This is Will Nicholas, and this is the Deep Faith Nine podcast. And today we're going to be looking at season three, episode 13. The episode is called Life Support, uh, in which Dr. Bashir must use extraordinary measures to prolong Vedic Baral's life long enough to allow Baral to complete sensitive peace talk negotiations with between the Bajorans and the Cardassians. Uh, and um, the uh, buddy relationship between Nog and Jake gets put in jeopardy by cultural differences uh, and a lack of understanding. Um, this uh, episode is um, uh, a, a, a great opportunity to have a look um, at quite a number of issues in relation to religion and politics, um, as well as uh uh, being rewritten um, as a cast member um, or even being written out as a cast member. And to help me to talk through this, uh, I've got a uh, uh, minister from the Uniting Church in the ACT, the Australian Capital Territory, right from the uh, the, the, the heart of our nation, uh, Darren Wright. Welcome, Darren, to the podcast. Thank you, Will. Short-time listener and uh, long-time friend. I do appreciate your uh, your contributions and comments that are coming back uh, on Deep Faith Nine and uh, and Voyager, um, and so it's been great to have you uh, listening and on board. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, it brings back a lot of memories watching through Deep Space Nine again. I will admit this is our second take of this because whilst the episode is called Life Support, uh, unfortunately our uh, our um, recording program also went into life support a moment ago so um we uh, we are doing take two of this episode uh, how, how are you feeling about that well i find it really funny that the, the program we're using zencaster has a health check that we have to pass um <laughs> constantly right. checking the internet speed and and we died it, it does look like uh you know the the waves of a of a of, of, of a life support system, doesn't it? We, we, we're a little bit like uh, Vedic Burial in this. Um, before we get carried away, though, I do need to ask you a couple of questions um, because you're here for the first time. Um, when did you first start watching Deep Space Nine? When I was in university, I got into late night TV fairly big and I had a lot of friends who were into next gen. So Deep Space Nine was the lo- next logical choice. And um, I think probably was when it first started hitting our screens in in Australia, which I think in the previous edition, we a previous recording, we uh, figured out was somewhere about ninety four, so somewhere around that. My second year in university, I am experiencing some levels of deja vu as we uh, as we record this uh, for the second time. Um, and uh, your favourite character in Deep Space Nine? Oh, um, I was thinking. Um, earlier on, I was thinking Dax is probably one of my favourite characters out out of it. Um, because she did sort of provide a bit of a glue that held the held the team together at different points of time. Um, I mean, the, the ones that stick out out of Deep Space Nine are uh, a, a Quark in particular, um, but more because I found him potentially annoying most of the way through it. But Dax probably comes into mind as my favourite character. It's um, it's interesting um, that. Um... We, we, we're having to rewrite this episode um, because um, there's a sense in which um, this episode marks uh, a, a point in time for the writers of Deep Space Nine to really examine where they're up to. They're about halfway through season three and um, and they uh, they realise, I think, that they're going to make it a few more seasons. And so they they start to take seriously some of the characters that they've, they'd left as quite shallow. So characters like Dr. Bashir, Jake, Nog, um, um, all start to get a, a serious redefinition in terms of um, who they are. Um, 
how, how have you found uh, Dr. Bashir um, um, pre-season uh, three as post into season three? Well, I think we were talking earlier on that um, he, he was he was a bit of an annoying character. It was, he was more like a Tony Stark, um, really inter- interested in the tech and um, fairly egotistical in that space. And he, he's, he's really starting to be rewritten into a more nuanced character in this uh, in this episode. It was fascinating, actually. Uh, I had uh, Sione Hehepoto on a couple of weeks ago to look at past tense and um, he, he'd never watched any Star Trek, uh, let alone Deep Space Nine before, and he said that he really liked Dr. Bashir as a favourite character because of his sense of compassion and his heart for people. Um, so, you know, they, they really have not just done a subtle shift but actually a, a full right turn here on Dr. Bashir um, in that episode and in this one. And it's not unusual either. You've been talking on the Voyager um, cast earlier on about... Um rewrites of certain characters um, to make them more nuanced, more rounded characters because maybe um, they're coming across as being too boyish or too um, egotistical or people not liking the character too much. And um, I guess in in Deep Space Nine, you could probably replace characters, but it's hard to replace characters on on Voyager um, because you're kind of stuck out there. But they chose to stick with these characters, and so you see that... um, the Doctor gets a bit of a rewrite in this episode, but in previous episodes, in future episodes as well. And so does um, Jake and Nog, really. They start becoming more than just young children hanging around. And in this, in this episode, well, their B story is fairly bland. It really sticks out like a sore thumb. But um, they start playing with those characters a little bit later on as well. One character in Deep Space Nine that has really struggled from the very beginning has been the character of Vedic Burial. Um, uh, Philip Anglin plays um, Vedic Burial, and you've, you'll have heard myself and my guests previously uh, give him a bit of a hard time. Um, he hasn't ever really captured our imagination. Um, and uh, I wonder how he was feeling when he read this script and he realised that he was being written out of the series, um, that uh that uh, they d- they did decide that this character was was utterly unsalvageable. <laughs> yeah, so we've decided that your character hasn't really been doing too well, so we're going to rewrite him. Oh, that's fantastic, fantastic! What are you going to do? Well, well, we're going to kill you. But before we kill you, we're going to kind of make you more android than Bajoran, and then we're going to kill you. Well, what I found fascinating about that too was there were a couple of issues around that. One was. Already, um, what they were concerned about was that um, he it would change the character of Vedic Baral into um, a sort of a, an insipid, weak, um, shades of grey character with very little personality and um, um, and and very little, um, I guess, uh, presence um, in the series. Um, which is exactly how I would have described the character of Vedic Baral um, up until this point. Um, he really didn't. Uh, he didn't shine. Um, and even as a romantic interest to Major Kira, he kind of just sort of seemed to be this <coughs> vague, um, un- uninteresting individual who sort of hangs around in the background. Well, yeah, and it's interesting to see how we actually write or how different religious leaders are written in um, in these stories because I find it interesting the way that they've written the, um, the religious leaders in, in Deep Space Nine because... The, the Kai before Kai Win was Kai, what was her name? Kai Parker. Kai Parker. And she came across as more wise and and respected. And then when they replaced her with Kai Win, and there was always this, there was that episode a few episodes ago when there was the who's going to be the next Kai. When they replaced her, they had two choices. They had sort of Burrell, who seemed to be sort of bland and boring, and Kai Wynn, who seems to be condescending and annoying. Um, and mm. neither had the same kind of presence that the previous religious leader did. But I- I'm wondering, like, when, when religious leaders change, do do we all have that kind of response? Like, they're not like the previous one. Um 
and we look at them in a different way. And it's not just religious leaders. I mean, look at the Doctor Who in sci-fi. Whenever the new Doctor Who gets replaced, we we long for a previous one. Yep, we we uh, we actually hate the new Doctor Who for a little while, and then we come to appreciate them, then we like them, and then we get upset because we hear they're going to be replaced by somebody else. And we go through and there the is cycle this over and cycle. over again. Yeah, and what I think about rewriting, it's not unusual either. Like we're talking about seven seven series here. Um, not that they knew that now, but even in three series, we expect some kind of character growth in those characters, and we've only just sort of been introduced to Burrell and to Kai Wynn and knowing that she's going to be, be, well, her character grows, whereas his character dies. Yep. Yep. We, I'm not sure I like what her character grows into. Um, uh, but uh, look, this, this kind of hits to the heart of, especially you and I, here we are two um, uh, religious leaders uh, of communities um, sitting, having a conversation about science fiction. And in this science fiction, it seems that the portrayal of leaders is, um, uh, right-wing, arrogant, political, condescending, uh, judgmental, uh, or bland, innocuous, sc- shades of grey kind of boring. Um, I mean, that kind of does hit the mark of how religious leaders are actually portrayed in, in current media um, and, and, and I think maybe thought about in public society, in, in Western society. And this is interesting because in, in this story at least, in this story at least, we know the prophets exist. That's correct. Like um, it's not like we're, We've we're met them. that they've got a religion based around nothing. They've actually got a religion that this entire series is based around, like they live next to this wormhole where prophets live. Um, yep. And... So it's not like they're a religion that uh, you can say your God doesn't exist because they do, Um, yet they still come to us as condescending and, um, and out for their own interests. How good would it be to actually have an orb of the prophet inside your church? You could actually open it up, you know, once a week and actually go, okay, tell me the sermon. Uh, or maybe just open it up in front of the congregation and have all those wispy lights come out and actually go straight into the, have an orb experience. Or <clears throat> or to be able to take a space shuttle up into the wormhole and, and hang out with the prophets for a while. I mean, that, it would just make... Um, evangelism so much easier if we could actually go, yep, here's their address, go and have a chat with them. Well, it's interesting because, like, taking the biblical route here, we've, we're talking about a, um, a prophet example who goes to the mountain or the wormhole to speak to gods. Um, yep. And there's people who are below or on different planets who um, wait for those words to be delivered. Yeah, um, it, it is. It is sort of a, a, a biblical model of prophet and and God speaking, and um, and I think what we hear in the future episodes uh, where there are possessions and other ways that the prophets try to um, speak to us, um, we do we do dive into that a little bit more about the the religious beliefs of the Jurans. but like in this space, we we actually assume that the the prophets exist. And we still look at the religious leaders of Bajor uh, with that suspicion that we do to our own religious leaders, I guess. Which means that that suspicion has very little to do with the credibility or validity of the religious practice and more to do with the behaviour and personalities of the religious leaders. Which is, once again, why they're rewriting characters, because people don't like them. So um, does that mean... Or not liked. Does that mean in Australian society what we need is a rewrite of religious leaders in um, public opinion? I mean, you know, are we are we stuck in the same rut here of actually having religious leaders uh, that are either seen as condescendingly arrogant and judgmental or insipid backdrops, you know, um, uh, really just furniture to be brought out when we need someone married or baptised or buried? Well, there is a question about, like, well, what... How do how how does a sci-fi writer create a religious character that people respect? Yeah, um, because it doesn't seem to happen too often. It, it, it's more more often the case that they write the religious leaders or the religious people as someone that you don't trust, and someone from outside becomes the prophet 
or the one that speaks to the to God and um, does God's work. Um, it's not it's not an unusual storyline in sci-fi is to find the outsider. And I guess it's also a biblical storytelling as well, because I mean, once again, you look at Moses who became the prophet's emissary, um, the, the God's emissary. Um, he was, he was a Jew, but he was still an outsider. Yep. Yeah. There's actually, I think they have um, used um, that Moses story, um, and, and and Cisco's role as the emissary, um, there, there's some strong parallels there. Um, but, yeah, before we move on to that, I think I just want to hold a little bit longer with this idea, you know, about the rewrite. Um, uh, you know, there, there are very good reasons why um, clergy in um, our country, Australia, actually have earned significant mistrust. I mean, we've, we've got, um, you know, stories of, of abuse, we've got, but not not just abuse of, of children, but also abuse of power, stories of corruption, um, suspicion about um, misuse of assets and 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 wealth and and money. Um, so so the church isn't synonymous with trustworthiness, respect, love, compassion um, amongst a, a large number of the population of people in Australia. And whether or not we're able to rewrite our way out of that, I'm not exactly sure we can. Um, which is where we, I guess we'll probably enter into the conversation about this um, surprise treaty, the treaty yep. that no one, even Cisco, knew was on the table. It was my intention to open talks between Bejor and Cardassia that would lead to a treaty and a final peace settlement. You have been negotiating peace with Cardassia? The prophets teach us that while violence may keep an enemy at bay, only peace can make him a friend. How long has this been going on? Vedic Boreil has been working to set up this meeting with Legate Terrell for the past five months. We wonder why does this, why is this treaty even coming into play at the moment? Um, because there doesn't seem to be much in in the way that the Cardassians are going to get from it. Uh, yep. um, it's not like they're the ones, it doesn't seem to be that they're the ones that are approaching Bajor saying, we would like to address our history and we would like to find a way of, of finding peace. And we would like to find a way of, um, of apologizing for, for our past. I found that was a, a very weak point in the story writing for this particular one because I found myself continually asking, what's in this for the Cardassians? The Cardassians don't do anything um, just for the for the for the heck of it. Cardassians always have a payoff. There's always something in it for them. Uh, they're big on pride. They're big on face saving. Um, nothing about this apology, nothing about making reparations seems to help the, 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 the Cardassian Empire currently in decline. They've had to sign a treaty with the Federation. They've been forced into defeat by the Klingons and now, now they're having this conversation not with another empire but just with a singular planet that they have um, brutally annexed, colonised and stripped resources from. I, I couldn't work out why the Cardassians were even willing to be at the table. Some people might be tempted to um, link this to uh, some, some stuff that's happened in different countries where colonisers um, try to find ways of apologising to, um, to the Indigenous people that they've colonised. Um, I think you could potentially look at this and, and have a conversation around um, around Australia's apology to the stolen generations. Um, but I don't think this is what's happening. Um, that being said, I, I think Star Trek and most sci-fi tries to squeeze big topics into small time allocations. And the idea yep. that you can find a way of... of building a peace treaty or um, a, a major apology in that in that space just overnight. Um, I, don't, I don't think anyone thinks that's possible, but what, that's what we see. Well, it certainly, I mean, it hasn't been possible in, in our real world case here in Australia where, you know, there, that we had our 
apology to the stolen generation um, back in 2000 and I think it was 2008, 2009. Um, and yet we still have huge gaps and issues um, with our indigenous population, with our, with our first peoples here. We, we still um, have a long way to go. Um, and, and sometimes something like an apology might seem like a big event, but actually doesn't, doesn't actually produce any, any real change. Well, one could ask the same questions that we ask of Cardassia, which is, are they to be trusted? Yep. Do they really mean what they're what they're saying? Are they only interested in, um, I guess, a political rewrite? Um, yep. And and to look at Australia when we were going through that, there's there's a sense where I, I like I truly think this apology was was an amazing an amazing event. But there are questions that that I have post that which asks serious questions around, okay, now that the apology that they've made that apology, what are the steps that we've made as, uh, as a country, um, to, to build on that? We have, um, and, and we've asked for their advice. We've asked for the advice and the direction of indigenous communities of, of Australia. And we have been given, um, some advice and what they would really truly like, um, but yep. we continually say no. No. Um, yep. So I, I think when we look at Cardassia, maybe we can look in the mirror a little bit and, and see ourselves and wonder, well, what's going on here and how have we have, as oppressors and as colonisers um, and as people who still oppress um, and still are colonisers real, really, um, how do we hear this story? Where do we see ourselves in in this story? Um, because we might be we might be fooled into thinking that we're the federation, which is which is one of the sleight of hands that we have sometimes in Star Trek. Is sometimes we assume yeah. that we're we're the federation, but we're quite often not. And and maybe that's why we dislike the Cardassians so much, uh, because it's at times like this where it's very difficult not to see ourselves reflected um, in the in the the posture and um, position of the Cardassian Empire um, that that um, you know we 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 want to see ourselves as the 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 the, uh, the, the magnanimous federation um, but we actually um, have to admit um, that um, that that in a lot of ways we we are colonizers uh, that it actually requires um uh, a huge amount of shedding of power uh for for us um uh to to um allow any kind of healing or or reparations or apology to actually be meaningful in the long run so in in, in this process of rewriting characters, do you think that this episode is part of the rewriting of the relationship between Cardassia and Bajor and and the Federation? Uh, I, I I don't think it comes quite yet, but certainly there's a foreshadowing of that. Um, but what we see going into the future, and uh, you know, we don't worry about spoilers in this episode, but but Cardassia actually takes uh, a really bizarre turn um into the future um and um and when the dominion come through the wormhole uh in later seasons Cardassia actually forms an alliance with and becomes the the i guess the beachhead spokesperson for um the the dominion uh they become the first uh empire uh in the um in in the Alpha Quadrant to actually um, become a, a full member of the Dominion, um, and 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 so there's a sense in which any thoughts of this treaty going anywhere uh, are completely lost um, uh, along the way. Uh, although it, it it does foreshadow also that the 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 Bajorans separate themselves from the Federation and also come to have some conversations with the Dominion as well to protect themselves. From this force, so so none of that's like this. Kind of this, um, the beatings of the drums of war on the horizon um, uh, that actually um, uh, haven't made themselves 
clear yet. We, we, we get a sense that there's something big coming with the Dominion, but we don't know what it is. Um, but Cardassia um, decides to throw in with, with the enemy of the Federation, um, which is actually a really interesting um, shifting turn. Which is um, coming to the question about what's in it for them. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm, I really, like, I think I'm, I'm with Cisco in the surprise that this is a peace treaty happening um, because there is a, I mean, the real question I have is what do either of them get out of it? Apart from potentially a promise that there won't be a war in the next season. Well, the only person with something to gain in this whole scenario is Kai Wynn. So Kai Wynn gets to be, and 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 Dr. Bashir really highlights this, that, that Kai Wynn gets to be, be a hero. She gets to do something significant as the Kai, uh, even though it might just be on paper significant. It's something that she gets to platform on um, and demonstrate her worth uh, as a religious leader. So it's it's actually very good for her profile, um, and potentially that's why she's so eager to 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 put everything on the line for it. Well, put other people's lives on the line for it. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Uh, and in fact, I think Bashir calls her on that. Eminence. You're the Kai. These are your negotiations. Let this be your moment in history. Finish the talks on your own and you won't have to share the credit with anyone. You say that as though success is guaranteed. Of course. If the talks fail, you'll need someone to accept the blame. A scapegoat. You're a coward. You're afraid to stand alone. Beryl's already made his decision, Doctor. I won't interfere. And, Doctor? I won't forget what you've said here. Neither will I. He says to her, you know, you've actually playing it both ways here. If you are successful, you get to say it was all me, and if it doesn't work, you get to say it was all Beryl. Um, and so that actually gives her an, an out either way. And but she's right because that's how it ends, isn't it? Like she yep. she claims a victory and and doesn't give that victory to to Beryl. Um. And and so Bashir's right in that way. I mean, if it went the other way around, um, I don't know what would happen if it went the other way around. Like, what happens if the treaty doesn't happen? Is there going to be another war? Or I'm not exactly sure. Um, but it's, it's it's loose storytelling that we've got in, in series three. Yep. Um, and if you're going to watch through um, the rest of this rest of the seasons, then you've really got to sort of plod through the mud that is season three. Um, and season three is we're talking about rewrites. It's not just a rewrite. It, it was a changeover of of main showrunners as well. I think at that point of, yep. at this point of time, so still people trying to figure out what the new what the new storytelling structure would look like as well. So you get a few rewrites and you get a, a bumpy season. They're also running into uh, the the end of the next generation. Uh, so, so TNG has finished last year. Uh, Voyager has begun this year, and Voyager has been immensely successful. It's a, it's a return to the format of the small ship out in the depths of space exploring. Um, whereas Deep Space Nine still has this this reputation of being a car park in space where. Um, you know, nothing, nothing really happens. So it's, so it's it, trying to be it, more ba- ba- Babylon five at this point of time, but um, Babylon five, that's right. But they don't really, Babylon five doesn't really fit in a Star Trek universe. Um, that's what Deep Space no. Nine was kind of um, trying to be that gritty car park in, in space. Um, rather than moving around, you've got people coming to you Um and it's, it's very awkward. And I think Voyager also stood out um, because it had a female captain um, and people were really ready for that at that point of time. So, yeah, Deep Space Nine starts struggling around about this point of time. And um, amazingly, though, they turn it around. A few character rewrites, they, a few storytelling um, 
miracles and they find themselves with seven seasons and a, and a storyline that, that actually flowed really well. And they do bring on uh, Michael Dawn as Worf, um, joins the cast in season four. Um, so that kind of um, uh, lifts lifts the profile a bit as well um, and, and I guess creates a stronger connection. Um, all of Star Trek is doing this kind of generational handover at this point in time um, because this is the same year that the movie Generations actually comes on as well. So, so in, And in the movie Generations, we actually have Picard reaching back in history to interact with Kirk. And so you've got this really interesting uh, Picard-Kirk interplay uh, on the planet when they, uh, they, they try to take out Roddy McDowell. It's very much like a Marvel universe, isn't it? Everything's interacting with each other at the moment, and something yeah. something's bound to uh, to struggle. And I think Deep Space Nine was the place it struggled. Um, yeah, but I mean, Kai Win is one of the most. I go back to her, like when you when you sent me the episode, I looked at it and I went, "Ah, poop, Kai Win." Like she is probably one of the most grating characters that there is. But without her, then you wouldn't have had an, one of the biggest conflicts that happens a little bit later on in the season or a little bit later on in the show. But I, I fail to see what your problem is with her, my child. <laughs> well, that's pretty much that was it, that, isn't it? Is that a good, good, good impersonation there? Yeah, it's something like um, I did threaten a little while ago to just only refer to you as my child. My child. We... Uh, the problem with Kai Win though isn't that that she doesn't hit the mark um, uh, in terms of um, evoking expressions of religious leadership. The problem is that she does. The problem is that that we've actually all met religious leaders who actually do this, who actually fill this mold. Um, that that for the last hundred and 50 years, um, th- this has almost been the template for religious leadership. It it has, and she does, like, she she's supposed to be a character that we don't trust, and she does, she's supposed to be a character that, that makes a hair stand on the back of our neck, um, and she does that really well. Um, and I think I sent you a message earlier on in the week when I was watching it that I wondered what damage um, people do in a space where you're a religious leader and you're going through your own deconstruction but you still got to hold on to the line. Um, a little bit later in the future, um, there's a big change in Kai Wynn's character again, um, and she admits that the prophets had never spoken to her. Yep. And so what happens if you're the religious leader for, for a country, for a, well, for a nation, for a world, and... The prophets don't even speak to you. Um, I'm wondering what kind of um, emotions come at that point of time, and particularly if the if the prophets choose to speak to an outsider on top of that. Um, now she would have gone through a lot of deconstruction of her faith and her beliefs, um, and she gets to a point where she makes some fairly drastic changes to who she follows. Um, but I can't help but think there are a lot of religious leaders who are going through a similar kind of thing with um, with their own faith, but not having a safe space to go through go through that process. Um, imagine how damaging it is for someone to um, go to church and lead a, a faith community, and um, meanwhile deconstructing their own faith. That's right, and it's not an easy process. That whole deconstruction of faith, uh, and and it becomes even more complex um, when um, religious religious practice becomes competitive, um, when religious position becomes competitive, and we we talked before about that um, that race to become Kai, where the people of Bajor had before them a choice between. Uh, a, a, a boring, innocuous, um, uh, unchallenging leader, um, and uh, a judgmental, narcissistic, um, um, confident leader, and and they actually made the decision to choose confidence, um, and and so they've actually put put their their alpha leader in position um, uh, rather than actually um, going with Barile, who who does seem like a a, a very very poor second. 
So it's um it's 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 actually quite a confronting episode uh, for religious leaders. Um, I know myself. I actually kind of go well. You know, it it is a difficult time um, in Australia at the moment to be um, to be leading communities um, when when there there are such doubts around. And I mean, one of the questions I'm left with at the end is now that we've spent some time talking about the uh, the peace treaty and questioning what do what do the characters get out of it? um, This is this is the thing that Burrell gives his life for. Yep, he's prepared to sacrifice himself for it. Uh, it wasn't his original plan. Um, I doubt that um, having part of his brain replaced and um, dying and coming back to life was all part of his plan, but um, he does. He gives his life for this treaty, and it makes me wonder what kind of things we'd give our life for. Um, he, uh, he, he goes out as irrelevantly and uninterestingly as he comes into the series. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> uh, but yes, it's, I think it's a great question. I mean, what are we prepared to actually to, to, to die for? Um, and um, and what happens if we back the wrong horse? And what? And I think Kira was there initially, saying that she didn't want to let him go because of the treaty. And then she has a similar. She has a change of of heart a little bit later on when she just realizes that she's going to have to let him go. Um, there's this the, the overarching storylines of this are around sacrifice um, and there's a B-side story as well which is around tolerance and I don't know if we'll get into that eventually we did originally um, yeah we, we'll circle back for it later <laughs> on but, um, but really around sacrifice what are you willing to sacrifice for and and what does it look like for others to have to bear that sacrifice as well? Now, I've been in some as a as a leader of of a congregation. I've been in some some tricky situations in the past where you know there've been conflicts, where there've been difficulties, um, where where placements have have ended badly, or or you know, and and there's a lot of pain and hurt in that. But but I think I think what you're saying is right. One of the hardest positions I've been in when I've been leading communities has been when I no longer believe in the cause that the community is fighting for. Um, when I when I no longer feel um, that the current strategy that we're putting in place is actually going to bear the fruit that we think it is. And and that's really, really hard. Like I, I have to, I'm, I mean, I'm being really honest at the moment about how difficult it is to be in a situation where Baral was, where he's going, I'm going to I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to give everything I am for something that actually may, in the long run, have very little importance or effect. Oh, but in his his viewpoint, it looked like it will have a long term, yeah, long term effect. Um, and sometimes when we're in, we're in the middle of it, that is how it looks. Um, but when we get that realization that actually that's not how it is at all. That's really tough. And I, I, I can imagine, well, I don't have to imagine that you spend a lot of time working on something like this and and you go through the conversations, you go through the consultations, you go through the decision-making and the dealings and, and then something happens and immediately the Cardassians decide that they're going to try and get back what they've left on the planet that is theirs. Yep. Um, and they start trying to push their way in again and get what they want. But eventually you get this treaty and not that longer, not that long after that, the, the Dominion rock up and the treaty gets torn up pretty much. Yep. Um, so you spend all this time working on it and then life happens. I mean, in in a real sense, you know, I've been in placements where we've worked on developing the property, we've we've painted the walls, we've made everything look really, really good, um, and then in the end, we end up with a non-viable congregation and we sell the building. Um, I mean, it's not unlike the Cardassian treaty with the Bajorans and the Dominion coming in and uh, and sweeping it all away. I'm just going to warn you that you just liken the Uniting Church to the Cardassians, <laughs> and um... I did. <laughs> 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 perhaps 
Perhaps that might have been an overstep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. You know, I'm going to take the risk. We'll go We'll go to air with it. It's, it's real. It's live. Uh, I, 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 I guess... One of the things I tried to do when I was watching this episode was was to try a, as hard as I could to relate to the religious leaders, um, and I can't relate to Kai Win at all. I just I'm not interested in that kind of religious politics or, or conversation. I don't feel that the ends justify the means. And you've um, already and, acknowledged and, that you didn't really like Vedic Burrell. And yet what's just happened in this conversation is that I've actually discovered that part of the reason why I think I don't like Vedic Burail is because, well, maybe I am Vedic Burail. Um, uh, maybe that is where we're, we're forced into this kind of mediocre position because of a fear of being like Kai Wynn. Are you, are you saying that you're feeling like society's rewritten the character that you're in and they're going to rewrite it so that you die? Well, it's, it's quite possible that, you know, um, that, that, uh, that, that we may actually all go to the wall uh, as religious leaders for absolutely no purpose or reason whatsoever. <laughs> well, that's really dark, isn't Excuse it? Excuse <laughs> me for a little while. I'm just going to go cry in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, on that really positive and, note, I do hope the Cardassians don't come in and... Uh, and uh, sweep us away. And hoping that um, no one replaces part of my brain with a positronic matrix um, because uh, I don't think I can handle that. Well, look, I, I, let's move to that because I, I actually, um, not move to replacing your brain, but but move to the positronic brain because I, I had real problems with this as well. Um, now, as Star Trek fans will know, um, the, the positronic brain matrix was actually uh, invented or created by Dr. Nunian Sung, uh, who is the creator of the, the, the data androids. Um, so you've got the Sung androids. Uh, we, we know of data and law, and then later on we have uh, a couple of prototype androids that come into the later movies. Um, the, the positronic matrix is this kind of breakthrough in AI um, thinking um, that actually allows for the closest to human um, um, existence for an artificial intelligence in an Android. And so we see that in Data, uh, who spends his entire um, journey um, towards having a great, greater and greater levels of, for want of a better word, humanity. Um, but we've actually um, now seem to head in the opposite direction here and say the positronic brain is not good enough. It can't do those things. Um, it seems to be an incongruous with the way that we understand data and what we're talking about with Barack. It also apparently makes you speak really slowly and become <laughs> a really bad actor, like a distant memory of acting. <laughs> Let's just say that he was a really bad actor beforehand and he just decided to actually just, you know, they said to him, look, here's your chance. You've right? got to act like a robot. You be just be yourself, okay, <laughs> and you'll you'll be fine. And and so he was, and they killed him. Um, but that's not how Brent Spinner brings the positronic um, matrix to life in the character of Data at all, and certainly not the way that he brings Brent Spinner brings um, it to life in the character of Law. Um, so we we actually don't have like like there, there seems to be something missing in this conversation about artificial intelligence and the positronic matrix. That it works from artificial intelligence towards humanity, but not the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's a backward step here and it's not like it's because of any lack of expertise or experience from Dr. Bashir, because two years ago in the Star Trek universe, um, Bashir is, is, has, has the opportunity to be engaged with data in the episode uh, called Birthright. Dr. Julian Bashir, Chief Medical Officer, Deep Space Nine. And you are Commander Data. Commander Data. The synthetic life form. Yes. It's an honor to meet you, sir. I've heard so much about you. Uh, you must have a fascinating perspective into bio-cybernetic research. I'd be delighted if we could discuss the subject sometime. I would be happy to do so. Uh, and in that episode, um, Bashir is instrumental in helping um, data um, uh, learn how to dream um, and to be able to come to terms with the concept of subconscious dreaming, which is a very 
human characteristic. Um, um, so, so it's not like, yeah, it just seemed that they, they missed, they missed the mark by using the positronic matrix in this way. It would have been better if they didn't use the positronic matrix. And they were very vague on it too. Let's, let's face it. I mean, they were very Gnostic in, in the way that there's a, a spark that you have, this spark that lives yes. in you, this spark that's in your brain that when the spark goes, you're not human anymore. Or something else, yeah, yeah. but I mean, it would have been really fun for Burrell to have had his entire brain replaced, um, and then to have to go through Data's journey or become a zombie or something out of it. Like, yeah. they could have done some real creative things instead, they'd sort of hell bent on killing him off. Oh, I like the idea of Vedic Burrell zombie fanfic, that's a great idea. Um, we should, we should write some of that. <laughs> no, I'm not doing that. Um, it, it just wasn't working. Um, the Burial character was just not working. They needed a way to keep him online um, and keep him going. They needed a way for him to, um, I guess, have the final indignity of being used by Vedic Win one more time. Um, I'm just not sure that the use of the positronic matrix is actually consistent with the with the overall story of 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 the the Sung um, android. Uh, and and brain. Well, it's definitely just it, it's sort of just saying that Bashir is able to bring people back to life. Oh, just like Jesus. Well, that's another like interesting question because was it a resurrection or was it just stasis or? I, I'm fairly certain Jesus didn't use a positronic matrix on Lazarus. Um, yeah, so uh, but that would that would make for some very interesting uh, Christian fanfic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Enterprise lands we... on ancient Earth. <laughs> Bashir and Data beam down and actually uh, do their experiments. We better stop, otherwise we're, we're you had you had that on a previous start. episode, though. You had time travel on a previous yeah. episode. We're not we're not going to do it again right now. No, that's true. That's true. Not not just yet. So, look, um, apart from, uh, you know, uh, putting careers at risk by likening the Uniting Church to the Cardassian Empire, Hi, listeners. Um, writing biblical narrative, um, there, there is a sense in which... Sorry, Deidre, if you're listening to, to this. We do have to stop and listen, I think. Um, we do have to actually take stock at times and actually say, okay, if something makes us uncomfortable... Um, Perhaps we need to rewrite. Perhaps we do need to actually um, ask ourselves the question. And, and sometimes, maybe if a character is just not working, perhaps it needs to die, uh, like Medic Burial. Well, yeah. I guess in in series like this, we we can be stuck with an idea like that. So the Simpsons, for example, they don't get older. Yep. I don't know how many series we're into now, but Lisa Simpson is still as young as she ever was. Um, yeah, that's right. And the characters still remain fairly static. They do exactly what you expect them to do. They don't change. Um, yep. Bart Simpson is always going to be Bart Simpson and Homer is always going to be Homer with the occasional moments of glory and miracle and beauty. But for the most part, they stay the same. Um, whereas in all the sci-fi series that there are, um, particularly all the Star Treks, the characters change. They have to grow. Um, some of them die. Some move on. Uh, even Dax gets a couple of rewrites. And, and actually recast. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's uh, we haven't even talked about the whole concept of recasting uh, yet, but, but certainly, yes, Dax does. Well, I'd argue, she, does. I'd argue that Dax doesn't. But the character, the, the character that hosts, yeah. yeah, does. But um, yeah, we we assume that in these in these shows that characters are going to grow and change, um, yep. and I think we're hearing that in your Voyager conversation too. I mean, Elizabeth really doesn't like Tom Paris. No, no, she's in for a bit of a surprise, I think, in the long term. Um, yeah, so that'll be that'll be good. Um. Um, Harry Kim doesn't change much, though, does he? Still an ensign after seven years. <laughs> be sucked. Like, be away for that long and not getting one promotion. Almost dying so many times and not getting a promotion. Actually dying twice uh, and not getting a promotion. Yeah, that's right. 
So that's the, yeah, that, we're um, deep space nining here. So um, there's there's a B storyline that we should probably mention just a little bit, which is Nog and Jake. We need to talk about um, the B story. Nog and Jake becoming the humour in the background of this story, reminding us that I guess on a on a on a space station like this, life goes on for everyone. Um, and the, I mean, the B storyline sits very uncomfortably, and you can see that they're starting to think that may, they might need to do something with those two characters as well. Definitely. Up until this point, they've kind of allowed the the human Ferengi relationship just to sort of sit there um, as, a, as an undealt with, unanswered issue. Um, but in this episode, they actually really bring to the fore the fact that, um, that that human understanding and cultural understanding are quite different. And and we actually get to the heart of this with Nog, where Nog actually, you know, bursts out with a moment of truth to Jake and actually says that he doesn't, you know, that that he 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 doesn't like um, the difference between the two of them. That he really struggles with that. So, yeah. Um, and um, and I think that's actually a, a really interesting dialogue between the two of them as they come to terms with the fact that they are they are so different in the way that they actually think about gender equality, economics, life, all of those. things. And these are things that Nog will eventually um, need to work through, not necessarily change everything about, but he his character changes quite substantially as he as he gets towards being a. Um, a member of the crew and trying to get in the Starfleet. So there is a moment of nexus here where we see Nog, I guess, making a decision to, even though it makes him feel uncomfortable, take a step towards humanity and the Federation. And we also see Jake taking a step um, or, or one of his first steps kind of away from that and actually um, becoming aware of the fact that if he wants to be a real student of the universe that he actually needs to be tolerant and accept things and people that are actually significantly different to him. It's like a first sleepover really. And, you know, you go to someone else's house and they, they hold hands to pray and they're, um, um, and, and they've got things in different places in their house. Very much so. Um, I was thinking also the dad relationship between um, Cisco and, and, and Jake when, um, I guess when he's he's remembering that at the beginning he was saying that um, that a Ferengi human relationship was not going to work, that he thought that the Ferengi relationship would be bad for Jake. Um, but there's this acknowledgement yeah. that actually perhaps it's been really good that they've been able to hold it yeah. together, um, and there will be moments where they recognise that their cultures are vastly different. I guess I just forgot you were a Ferengi. You forgot. To most people, the lobes are a dead giveaway. What I mean is we, we spend so much time together and, and we seem so much alike. I, I sometimes forget we're different. He acknowledges it in this episode where he's he kind of forgets that they're different. Yep. Um, he looks at everyone and sort of assumes that they're fairly much similar to him. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's an awkward B-side story, but it's one that... Um, speaks of tolerance um, and friendship um, and, and maybe in this space where we're dealing with two characters who or two nations who are trying to work through a peace treaty, two enemies that are trying to find some common ground, um, also having two friends who are trying to find so, some common ground um, in, a humor, ground. in a humorous yeah. way sort of fits a little bit, but it's, it's uncomfortable. It's one of those things that Americans have a tendency to do in these kinds of shows is we've got a big story arc and we've got a little story arc and both of them coincidentally kind of mesh somewhere. Well, do you have any other disgusting Ferengi customs I should know about? Plenty. And I know plenty of human customs which disgust me. Great. So we both disgust each other. You know, as we get older, this is just going to get worse. But I know one thing. I don't want to lose you as a friend. Well, in that case, double dating is definitely out. Agreed. 
The uh, the double date seems to be a very uh, awkward American concept as well. Uh, I I have to admit I've never been on a double date. Neither myself. have I. I've never really been one for dating. I've sort of found myself in relationships. <laughs> in fact, my my wife and I when I remember dropping her off at home after after something, and I looked at her and I said, "So, just need to check. Is, is there something going on between us?" <laughs> I'm not really sure. So I've never really been one for double dating. Um, I'm not sure if you have either. No, no. The whole concept just seems really awkward to me. The whole idea of uh, I'm going to go out for a for a, a, an encounter design, a date, a, an encounter design to get to know someone better, um, to, to enhance a level of intimacy, and I'm going to bring my friend and their date as well. Um, I mean, I, I'm just not sure what the difference between a double date and um, sort of going out to dinner is. Like, you know, um, I, I, I don't quite, don't, don't quite get it. <laughs> um, well, maybe, maybe we won't dwell too much on on this, but um, but it is the B story that sits there. And Jake and Jake and Nog sort of they provide in a few episodes. They provide this sort of B storyline that's a bit humorous that sits around the episode as well. Um, but we don't get too much of that from here on in. Yep. No, that's fine. Well, look, I'm glad that we have had a chance to talk about the Cardassian basis of union uh, and the way in which the Cardassian union has come come to be. Uh, and it's been a, a great opportunity for us to explore um, the, the potential um, pitfalls in rewriting characters um, when there isn't actually a sincere willingness to change or shift behind them uh, and but also sometimes the importance of actually taking a moment to reflect and explore about what aspects of who we are and what we believe need to be rewritten um, so sometimes we've got to kill our barriles and improve our bashirs and we end up with uh, with a better story in the long term um, uh, any final thoughts uh, as we bring this uh, this uh, uh, uncomfortable and tragic episode to an end <laughs> I, it's it's all about what comes afterwards, though, isn't it? Like, um, yep. if you if you do sit with the story for a bit longer, then there are, there is payoff. Um, and I think sometimes we get to stories and we, um, and we might get to an awkward play, place and want to walk away from it. Um, yep. But in this space, we're we're recognizing that. The story is changing, and if you do stick with it, um, there are some payoffs that happen a little bit later on. Um, that being said, we're still we, we don't. I, I, one of the things I would love would have loved them to have done in this episode, which was not necessarily to have the B story being um, being Nog and Jake, but being um, Kira and and Bashir speaking about the loss. What yep. what do they think um, is going on? Um, and spending some time with that grief. But I, I have a sneaking suspicion that people are a bit afraid of of grief in this space because they, they don't want they want people to feel happy about it or awkward about it, but not necessarily dive into um, into that grief space for long. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, which is really interesting given that dwelling in the grief space, um, being prepared to sit in the suffering and the difficult spaces is is probably uh, one of the most significant and important roles of the religious leader. Um, and neither of our religious leaders in this episode actually spend any time in that space at all. Mm. Um, I guess Baral because he's no longer capable because he's lost half of his brain um, and Win because, well, she hasn't shown any capability for empathy at any stage during the series so far. Um, yeah, so there's that, that. that's really interesting. Um, we did talk earlier, and I can't remember whether it was in this take or in the previous take, um, about um, the role of the emissary uh, and the emissary being an outsider and brought into question um, his role, um, Cisco's role as the emissary. Um, that does come up in a couple of weeks uh, in the episode Destiny, um, where um, the, a new emissary, a Bajoran emissary, actually appears on the surface. 
we get more Cardassians and prophecies and religious practice. I'm wondering whether you might like to come back in a couple of weeks and actually talk through the episode Destiny with me. Yeah, I could probably do that. That could be fun um, as long as we're not kicked out of the United Church by then. Yeah, well, look, I'll, I'll certainly uh, I'll take full responsibility and culpability for uh, for any uh, harm that's been caused to either our reputations during the filming of this episode. No, no reputations of Uniting Church ministers were harmed during the recording of this episode. Is that, that how it that's goes? probably how it goes? Um, so, what's the yeah. traditional um, Bajoran farewell? Uh, well, the Bajorans tend to say "Paldor Joy." Pardon joy to you, Will.